Ready to begin. Name the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we come to you this night as your sons and your daughters. We ask you, Lord, that you would bless our time here this night, that you would draw us deeper, deeper into your heart of mercy, that you would open our eyes and enable you to, to enable us to see you more clearly in our life. We ask that you protect us, that you draw us closer to you. And Mary, as always, we ask for your motherly protection and for your motherly intercession upon us now and all the days of our life. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's important that we build a foundation because if the foundation is unstable, the house is unstable. Jesus says, if your house is built on sand, when the wind and the sea and the storms come, that house will be washed away. And so it's always good to begin with a very basic truth. The truth of God's love. Because if we don't start there, if we, in a sense, if we don't get that right, nothing is going to make sense. Nothing about Catholicism, nothing about the sacraments, nothing about the moral life, nothing about the life of prayer is going to make sense if it's not first rooted in this foundation of God's love. And so that's where we begin this night. And it's interesting, if I asked each one of you here tonight, do you think that you are lovable? Or in other words, do you think that you are worthy of love? How would you respond? A similar question, when you look in the mirror, what is it that you see? Most of us, we see our faults. We see our, our failings. We see our weaknesses. We see our mistakes. We see or we remember all the things that we could have done or maybe should have done or that have been done to us that prevents us from seeing the goodness, from seeing the love by which not only were we made, but by which we are held in existence in this very moment, right now. My parents met on a blind date 39 years ago. My father had just come back from Vietnam, where he was shot in his shoulder and wounded. And both my parents had a mutual friend 
who thought it would be a good idea for them to meet. And after dating for about a year, my dad was beginning to wonder, is she the one? And without much really thinking or even without much prayer, he decided that she was. But now he had the difficulty of asking her. And so my dad had this plan one day. They were going to go bowling at night. And there in the middle of the bowling alley, my dad was going to ask my mom to marry him. And my dad, as would naturally be expected, had fear. What happens if she says no? How am I going to live my life without her? All these questions. But there was a deeper fear that was really entrenched in my father's heart. Because of his disability, because of him being shot, he really could only use one of his arm, his right arm. And so my dad had this fear, how would he be able to get a job to support a family? How would he be able to take care of children? And that fear was really holding him back, making him more anxious, more nervous, and more afraid. And kind of after wrestling with himself interiorly, going back and forth, he finally decided, well, he's just going to ask my mom anyway. And he didn't wait for the bowling alley. He pretty much asked her as soon as he picked her up and she got in the car. And without hesitation, my mom said yes. But my dad was so convinced that she was going to say no, that what he heard was no. And so my dad launched off into this explanation, this understanding of why she would say no. You know, I understand why you would say no. I'm not going to be able to get a job. I'm not going to be able to take care of kids and all this stuff. And on and on and on, my dad went off justifying what he thought my mom said. And then after about a minute or two, my mom said something to my dad that I would hear her say often in their marriage. John... Shut up. <laughs> it was a chorus that I heard in my house growing up, at least once a week. My mom said something very beautiful after she told him to shut up. She said to him, she said, John, I love you for who you are not for what you can do. She said, I love the man who you are, and that is enough for me. See, my mother's love for my dad was unconditional, meaning that it was without borders, without restrictions. Hence, it was real love. It wasn't based on what someone could or could not do, but simply on who somebody was. And God's love is even greater than that. The love of God goes even further. 
Because my parents' love, as good as it was, was not perfect. Sometimes their fear, sometimes their insecurities, sometimes their selfishness, or sometimes their mouth, prevented them from truly loving each other. Yet God's love never hides because of fear. God is never insecure about who he is. God is not afraid about what other people will think. Neither is God afraid of what will happen if I love and I'm not loved in return. And there's a part of us that knows this. Why else would we be here? Why else would we go to Mass on Sunday? Why else would we spend time in prayer? But there's also a part of us that forgets this. And we forget it quite often. And we accept the lies about ourselves. Those lies that we see when we look in the mirror. And I suppose the real question is, how do we know what love is? You know, we say we love all kinds of things. Ice cream, sports, cars. But what we really mean when we say we love those things is that we have a strong attraction towards them, that they give us a certain amount of pleasure. And yet Jesus says in the Gospel of John, probably the greatest definition of love, he says, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love is ultimately more than a feeling. Love is always sacrificial. It is always total. It is a complete gift of self. Where can I find this love? The only place in human history where love has never been compromised, where love has never been cheated, where love has never been afraid, or insecure is at the cross of Jesus Christ. All of our definitions of love, in a sense, fall flat when we come before the cross of Jesus. 
There's so many beautiful works of, of literature, poetry, so many wonderful movies and stories about love. And they're all very good. But yet, they still are a great distance away from the love that we see at the cross. Because it's there in the cross of Jesus where we see what love looks like. We see what love is supposed to be. How it is sacrificial. How it is selfless. How it doesn't seek a reward or really anything in return except our attention, our acceptance of that love. And so the question, which I think burns in the heart of every human being, does God love me? Does God love us? Are you, am I, lovable? The answer is yes. And the proof is the cross of Jesus Christ. You have a very beautiful stained glass window of St. Francis. And I'm a little biased as a Franciscan, but St. Francis is the best saint there is. I'm very humble about that as well. And St. Francis, it's funny, he's always pictured with animals. Obviously because he had a love for animals. But unfortunately, that's only what a lot of people seem to know about St. Francis. There's so much more to the man than just the love for animals. Because when Francis was young, he grew up in a, a middle-class family he was a very worldly man. He loved parties. He loved getting the attention. He loved being popular. He loved the finer things of life. And what Francis desired most was fame. You have to keep in mind this is the 12th century. This is before reality TV shows and presidential debates that are more like comedy shows. So what a person did in the 12th century if they wanted to become famous was they would go off to war and hopefully become a sort of a hero, a war hero. And when Francis gets his opportunity to go off into battle, the very first thing that happens to him is he's taken prisoner. And he spends a year in what we would consider solitary confinement. He basically spent a year in a cave. And Francis had a lot of time to think about his life. And he realized that many of the things he was searching for, many of the things he was hoping for, putting his trust in, running after, 
were, re- were really vain. They were really attempts to receive love. And when Francis leaves prison, he has a beautiful encounter with the Lord. Jesus appears to him. And he basically says to Francis, Francis, I am who you are looking for. I am the love that you seek. And when Francis goes back to his family, and his friends try to take him out and go to parties and visit all these people, and his father tries to get him back into the business that's going to make him successful, Francis becomes sad. He becomes depressed because he realizes there's something more, and I want that something more. Francis would go off into the mountains of Assisi to pray, and after a while he would come back, and his face was glowing. He had a huge smile on his face, and all of his friends thought that Francis had fallen in love, that he had met a woman who had wooed his heart. And it's true, Francis did fall in love. But what he fell in love with was God's love. He fell in love with Jesus, particularly Jesus on the cross. And it was said about Francis that sometimes after spending days reflecting upon Jesus on the cross, he would walk through town where he would almost look like a madman. And he would say things like, love is not loved. Love is not loved. Meaning that Jesus, who is love, was ignored by most of the people. And what was so important for Francis, and this is really the pillars of Franciscan spirituality, are two events, the Incarnation and the Passion. The Incarnation, God becoming man at Christmas. This mystery would send Francis into tears. The very thought for Francis that God loved us so much that he would become a little baby, Francis couldn't get enough of it. And then the passion of Jesus, his suffering and his death, would lead Francis to tears because this God who became a baby, now grown up, all of a sudden allowed himself to be handed over to men, to suffer, to die. Francis loved these two mysteries. They were really, in a sense, bookends to his life because it was there, Francis believed, where he could see most clearly what love looked like. And it's this tremendous love of God that inspires saints, that turns men and women into saints. It's this tremendous love of God that calls people to vocations, to priesthood, and to religious life. 
Once I was on a plane with a, a sitting next to a woman, and she was married. And the ironic thing was, she was so angry because I was a celibate priest. I said, lady, I'm pretty happy as a celibate priest. You don't look too happy married, so... <laughs> I don't know who's got the better deal here. <laughs> but what she couldn't understand, she thought that celibacy, she would always say, is unnatural. It's not normal. And I said to her, well, of course it's not natural. Getting married, having a family, is a natural, good, beautiful thing. Celibacy in a vocation for God is a supernatural gift, a supernatural grace. And the reason why a person can live a celibate life is not because they're giving up love, but actually they're entering more fully into love itself. One of my favorite scripture, pa scripture passages is St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. Because it's there where St. Paul asks this question. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes off on this litany. He says, shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, famine, the sword, shall all of these things separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul says, no. He says, in all of these things, we are conquerors because of him who has loved us. And then he says what I think is one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture. He says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor anything in this world can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from his love. Except, of course, our own refusal of it. Because it's love that makes us free. This is what my father experienced when my mother said yes even though he couldn't believe it at first. Her yes to my father's love enabled him to be a free man because he realized if she loves me with all of my faults, quote unquote, with all of my failings with this handicap, maybe I am lovable. And that is why we believe, certainly as Christians, that it's possible to be sick, it's possible to be handicapped, it's possible to experience tragedy in life, and to not be overwhelmed by it. If you were here this weekend at Mass, I told the beautiful story of 
my friends whose little girl died after one week. And even though, yes, it was sad, they were not overwhelmed. And the reason why they were not overwhelmed, the reason why someone who's sick or suffering is not overwhelmed, is because those things don't define us. It's God's love that defines who we are. And that's why the poorest person in the world, and I have lived with the homeless and the poor for the last 13 years of my life, and I've seen a lot of materially poor people, but the poorest person in the world is the one who does not know Jesus Christ and his love for us. Because I have seen many poor people who know the love of God, who have embraced the love of God, and they are rich. And I've seen many wealthy people who do not know the love of God, and they are essentially poor. One of my favorite saints, besides St. Francis, who's the best, is St. Lawrence the deacon. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story. He was a saint, I believe, in the, second, the first or second century. He was a deacon in Rome. And the, the Roman emperor at the time, the governor, you might find this hard to believe, but was completely narcissistic and self-centered. And he was paranoid about the Christians because he believed that these Christians that were, that were seeming to just sprout up everywhere, he believed that they were holding some sort of treasure in the churches, that they were holding all this money back from the state. And so he commanded St. Lawrence to bring him all the riches of the church. And he gave him two days to do that. And what St. Lawrence did was he went all around the outskirts of Rome and he gathered all the poor people, all the homeless people, and he brought them to the emperor. And he said, Emperor, here are the riches of the church. The emperor was furious. And he commanded that St. Lawrence be put to death. And the way that St. Lawrence would be put to death was he was going to be, in a sense, burned alive. He was put on a stake, almost like a pig. You'd be roasting a pig. And he was put on this, this stake, and he would be burned alive. And after a bit of time of being there, St. Lawrence looks at one of the executioners who's watching him burn to death, and he says to him, you can turn me over. I'm all done on this side. Who talks like that? Either St. Lawrence was a little bit crazy, or he was living in this other world. This other world that is God's love. Because he knew that no matter what happened to him in this life, that this wasn't the end. St. Francis, towards the end of his life, wrote a beautiful 
poem, a beautiful song. It's called The Canticle of Creatures. And I'm sure you've probably heard it. But in some sense, it's a praise of creation, where he, he thanks creation. He calls the sun his brother, and the moon his sister, and the water his brother and friends. He praises creation because it reveals God's love to him. And what is so beautiful about that story is that St. Francis wrote that poem when he was blind. Francis spent the last three or four years of his life blind. And in his blindness, he wrote this beautiful poem about the creation of the world and how it reflects the love of God. And the reason why Francis could write a poem like that when he was blind was because he was a man who had lived and breathed the love of God in his life. And this is what the saints revealed to us, whether it's St. Lawrence, whether it's St. Francis, whether it's St. Therese. It is the love of God that is so embedded in the depths of their soul that they can experience anything in this world and not be overwhelmed because they know who they are. I'm sure many of you have heard of the name of Karl Marx. He's a little different than St. Lawrence or St. Francis. But Karl Marx really was the blueprint for what is today is communism. It's really an, an atheistic system of government that tried to pretty much reject religion, erase religion, and create a sort of heaven on earth. And Karl Marx once said, he said, religion is the opiate of the people. And what he meant by that was that religion was like a drug that people would use when things got difficult to make them feel good. Is a way to sort of check out from reality. Yet, nice feelings don't sustain us in times of trial, in times of suffering. But love does. Real, genuine love. What Karl Marx didn't understand is that love, if it is authentic, if it is real, is usually not a nice feeling. Love usually doesn't feel like a drug that we use to escape reality. But that love is difficult. And that love is, in a sense, a crucifixion. If we think about it, most people avoid suffering, including myself. Most people would avoid suffering any chance they can get. Jesus runs towards suffering. And this is, and it is here where he proves his love for us. In the Gospel of Luke, it's actually chapter 9, verse 51, there's a very important verse. It says that Jesus turned his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus will be betrayed, where he will suffer and where he will die. And in the Gospel of Luke, when we reach that part, and it says Jesus turns his face like flint towards Jerusalem, it's Jesus, in a sense, turning his whole being, 
literally his body, but also his mind, his heart, and his soul, towards the suffering that awaits him. When everyone else is trying to run away from suffering, Jesus says, no, it is there where I must go, because it is there where I will prove to the world the love of God. It is there where I will silence any doubt from people wondering, does God exist? Does God love me? And on Holy Thursday, when Jesus is in the garden, in his agony, in the garden of Gethsemane, the scripture says that Jesus fell on his face and prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me. And then it says that his sweat became like drops of blood. That phrase, his sweat became like drops of blood, is not a poetic phrase. There's actually a psychological medical condition that in a time of serious distress, in a time of serious suffering, a person can actually sweat blood. And this is what Jesus is experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so love, Jesus proves to us, is not cheap. Love is, religion is not some drug, like Karl Marx said, for us to escape our problems. But that it's really, because of Jesus, an entrance right into the heart of our human suffering, into our human pain. One of the fathers of the church said that the cross is the trophy of God's love. What a beautiful line. The cross is the trophy of God's love. And to the extent that you and I stand near the cross with Jesus is the extent of how well we will know his love. You know, we cannot run away forever. Earlier this evening, I shared with you how my father and mother met and how they began their life together. My mother spent the last 15 years of her life in a nursing home. She was diagnosed with dementia, which became Alzheimer's, which would eventually take her life just three years ago. And every single day, my father would drive about 40 minutes to the nursing home to see my mother. And as time went on, sometimes she was more difficult. And every single day when he left, he would kiss her and he would say, I love you. And I, when I reflect on that, it almost seemed like now the roles, in a sense, were reversed. And that now my father was saying to my mother, I love you for who you are and not for what you can do. 
And when my mother did die, who was there but my father? I was there as well with my sister. But my father never left her side. The story of my parents obviously is a beautiful story. On one level, it's a romantic story about faithfulness, about love, about the beauty of marriage. But on another level, that story is like a metaphor, or it's almost like a window that points to something even more profound. The story of God and his people. Because this is the way God loves us every moment of our lives. This is the good news that Jesus is trying to speak into our life every moment. I love you for who you are and not for what you can do. You do not have to earn God's love. It's impossible. And it's probably why it's the most difficult thing. Oftentimes we want to run around and do things for God, which is good. The very first thing is to accept God's love into your life. To accept the fact that God loves you no matter what you have done. No matter what you will do, God's love is there. And this is the foundation of Christianity. St. John says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. Christianity is unconditional love. And Jesus is the definition Jesus is the face of what love looks like. And so this night, as we begin this mission, we're faced with this question. Do you believe this? Do I believe this? Your life, my life, is not a mistake. The only way our lives can make sense is in him. The greatest sign of his love is the cross. The cross does not lie. And so, my brothers and sisters, let us pray this night for the grace to receive this incredible mystery, this incredible beauty of God's love. God who is saying to each one of us, I love you for who you are and not for what you can do. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.